December 7, 1941. It's history. A date which will live in infamy. The figures. The drama. It's hardcore history. From time to time, I will get email from people asking for suggestions. And they'll say something like, I'm really interested in history. I want to understand more about it because I really want to understand more about the times we live in now. And you know, that's understandable, isn't it? We talk all the time on this show about one of the wonderful aspects of history is how it fills you in on how we got to where we are today, right? It fills in the gaps, helps us to understand the now. So it's natural to have people write and say, give me some suggestions on what I should study if I want to better understand the now. And for those people, I always offer up the subject of the First World War as the best example of, in my opinion, an event which explains our century. The era in which we live right now, I firmly believe that historians five and six, seven hundred years from now are going to look at as the, you know, the aftershocks caused by the great earthquake that was the First World War. That We're still ironing out the creases from the changes that the First World War wrought. And, you know, I don't want to fall into kind of a narrative history here. I don't want to say, well, the war started here and it moved to here and had some big battles here and blah, 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 and then knocked out of the war here and this date and time. Because to me, that takes us away from the truly mind-blowing stuff that World War I involves, I guess you could say. So we're going to assume, and we always try to anyway, a little historical knowledge on your part. And we figure that you can always go look World War I up for the dates and the times and the players and all that stuff. But my job here is to try to make a show that's interesting for the people who do have some background in this First World War and the people who don't. And I thought the best way to do that is just to share how overwhelmed I always am by the First World War whenever I talk or read or hear about it. And I think what blows me away the most is I love contrasts. And there is no greater contrast to me than the world that entered into the First World War, you know, in 1914 when the First World War started, what the world was like, and four years later, how transformed it was by this conflict. And if you wanted to see a picture of what Napoleon's cavalry looked like at Waterloo, and of course Waterloo fought in the early 1800s, 1813, 1814, 1815, what did Napoleon's, you know, cavalry look like with their breastplates and their tall boots and their horsehair helmets and their sabers flying. What did they look like? Because, you know, that's the era before there were photographs, right? Well, I'll tell you where you can find 
a photograph on what Napoleon's cavalry looked like. You can look at what the French cavalry looked like on the eve of World War I. The world that went to war in 1914 was the world left over from the Napoleonic era a hundred years before. The photos of the French heavy cavalry riding off to meet the Germans in what became known as the Battle of the Frontiers at the very outset of the First World War. There are photos. I've got them up in my room. French cavalry dressed in steel breastplates, carrying sabers with boots up past their knees with spurs on the heels, carrying sabers and white gloves and horsehair helmets and mustaches that looked like they belonged in a history book from a hundred years before. That's the world that marched off to war in 1914. The world that marched back in 1918 looked like our world now. The soldiers looked thoroughly modern. Hard to tell the German soldier who arrived back on his native soil at the end of the war in 1918, early 1919. Hard to tell him from his Nazi Wehrmacht counterpart of 20 years later. Same helmet, same basic outfit, same basic look, thoroughly modern. But that's the same soldier that marched to war four years beforehand in a spiked helmet that looked like something out of the 1800s. Because it was. With mustaches that turned up at the end, like the Kaiser had. The war swept away the old world of the 1800s, that world where Europe was probably at its height, the height of European dominance and power, you know, in relation to the rest of the world, were the late 1800s. And think about what the war did. I mean, Britain was the strongest, most affluent, most dominant nation on the planet in 1914. By 1918, that was over and would never be that way again. The war destroyed great empires like a meat grinder. France was never the same. Their quick collapse in 1940, in the Second World War, when the Germans came in, you can attribute that directly to the damage done to the French military in the First World War. Germany obviously transformed their hereditary ruler, the Kaiser, and that word comes from Caesar, just substitute, you know, the C sound with a K sound, Kaiser, Kaiser. That's the same root word that the Tsar of Russia's term comes from as well. Another empire completely transformed. They didn't even wait till the end of the war. Russia fell apart a couple of years into the war. They suffered terrible defeats at the hands of the Germans, weakened their country, and opened the door to the Tsar being overthrown and having the monarchy replaced by the most radical regime probably to come out of the First World War, the... Bolshevik Soviet Union, led by Vladimir Lenin, who, by the way, was sent to Russia on a train by the Germans in the hopes that he would destabilize a crumbling czarist Russia, and he did. Just another example, too, of how easy it is to see how much the First World War's changes impact us even today. I mean, very likely you have no communist Russia if there's no First World War. And if you have no communist Russia, you have no Cold War. And think about how much we're still living with the effects of the Cold War now. The wars in the Middle East that are going on 
right now. Just the shaking out still of the Ottoman Empire who controlled that region for hundreds of years before the First World War. And as a result of that First World War, had their empire broken apart. There is a Saudi Arabia today because the Saud clan fought with the British against the Turks in the Middle Eastern part of the First World War. We're still living with the changes wrought by that most traumatic of conflicts. And why was it so traumatic? I remember I probably took three or four semesters worth of courses in college that focused on nothing but the changes that that war created in human beings who then went home and collectively changed the world. I mean, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Um, there's a book by Somerset Maugham called The Razor's Edge. And The Razor's Edge is just one of thousands of literary works where the main character is goes off to war with all of the ideas of the romance of the war and the heroism of, of the war. Um, you know, we just can't imagine today the sort of, I think we would call it brainwashing, but it was just their cultural experiences and expectations. The sort of mindset of the people that went off to war in 1914 and how much different and how less cynical it was than what we would have today. But that war was what transformed those ideas of you know, those idyllic pre-1914 ideas into reality. That war wasn't heroic, that it was a machine that ate lives. And then those people who were traumatized by that conflict when the war ends are demobilized, they go back to their homes and collectively they work their post-traumatic stress out in their societies. Mom's book is just one example, but the literature of the 1920s is replete with this stuff. The whole era that the great Gatsby symbolized and the, you know, desire to live for today. A lot of that's connected to the experiences that the war had on people. Obviously, the nations that took part in it were traumatized and they were not allowed to forget their trauma. I remember in one of these courses I took, the professor showed um, medical photos of the reconstructive surgeries that were done on a lot of these horribly maimed veterans who came back from the war. People who had no arms or no legs or were missing a major part of their face. I remember one photo has stayed with me forever. It was of a veteran who somehow had managed to get a hole clean through his head, didn't die, apparently was able to live, and the efforts of the surgeons to try to repair this hole, which you could literally see behind him through his head. These were the people walking around Europe's capitals uh, begging in the streets in a lot of cases, reminding everyone there of that traumatic conflict. And it wasn't just the changes in all the individual outlooks that these people had. You know, they went from an idyllic world where they had all these notions of heroism and romance and monarchy and all these other things, and then they're thrust into this thoroughly modern world after a traumatic birthing process of this war. And these people were radicalized. I mean, once you saw the war, radical means did not seem so hard to contemplate. When Bolsheviks and right-wing veterans groups fought it out in the streets of Germany after the First World War was over, 
that was a perfect example of the radical, nationalistic, in some cases fascistic policies that were to fill the vacuum that was left there when, you know, kings and empires were swept away by this amazingly torturous conflict. And I have people ask me sometimes whether I think the First World War was harder on the people who fought it and lived through it than the Second World War, and I always say yes. And the reason why is the people of the Second World War knew what they were getting into because there had been a First World War. The societies that went into the First World War were completely unprepared for what they ran into. What they ran into was the machines of war, the modern things that we understand war to consist of now with things like, well, take a look at the contradiction between what the powers that entered into the First World War thought they were going to run into and what they did run into. I mean, when the nations of Europe marched toward these conflicts they were going to face in 1914, they did so with cavalry, among other things. Imagine that. They did so with bayonets on the end of their rifles intending to drive the enemy away with bayonet charges. The French army was wearing sky blue jackets and bright red pants. Their officers wore white gloves and carried swords with gold braid around the end, intending and actually carrying out maneuvers under machine gun and artillery fire that looked like they're taking place on a parade ground. You know, guys in drill formation, lined up like bowling pins, calmly walking into machine gun bullets and shrapnel. The old world died on those 1914 battlefields. There's one of the largest meeting of armed men that have happened in the history of the world happened in those first clashes on the Western Front. The history calls them the Battle of the Frontiers. And the Battle of the Frontiers are when the giant French armies clashed with the giant German armies, both moving in opposite directions. Millions of men, when you take both sides together, running into the machines of the 20th century with the tactics and the thinking of the 19th century. The carnage was horrifying. And you would think tactic altering too, but part of the awfulness of the First World War was the inability of the um, high commands of all of the powers fighting to really get a handle on what these changes meant. It took years of senseless slaughter using tactics that were doomed to failure from the start, we now understand, before it became apparent what the new reality meant. And the new reality meant a couple of things. First of all, it meant that the defensive was the supreme element of warfare for the time being. You know, in war, at times the offense will get the upper hand, and that's when you have wars where you know, the offensives of one side just completely crush the other side. And in other times, the defensive is paramount. The First World War was one of the times where the technology and the weapon systems and the limitations at hand favored the defense and favored the defense by such a wide margin that rather quickly, the war in the West especially, became a trench war. Meaning that all sides dug in, dug deep trenches, 
between the trenches of the two sides, it was called no man's land, and they would often set out reams and reams of barbed wire. There were shell craters, you know, sometimes 20 feet deep from previous bombardments, littering the field. And when one side decided they were going to launch an offensive against the other, they crawled out of their trenches and ran, hopefully, across this no-man's land through these giant shell craters trying to get through barbed wire that they hoped that the artillery had cut before they launched their attack, through the artillery fire, only to get to the other side and fight these horrifyingly close combat, vicious battles with people that don't exist anymore. That's the only way I can convey my astonishment at the different mindset of those people from a hundred years ago. You want to pick up a book that will blow your mind. Go pick up Storm of Steel by Ernst Junger. When I was growing up in high school and stuff, when the teachers would assign books on the First World War, they would assign books like all Quiet on the Western Front, right? We all remember that book. And the reason why is because books like that do a very good job of giving you the senselessness of the conflicts, and they all have a moralistic message of, you know, peace is good, war is bad, let's never go through anything like this terrible World War I again. So the message is uh, positive, so we're assigned those books to learn from history. But there are darker books that in some way explain things in a way that astonishes us more than books like All Quiet on the Western Front. And Younger's is one of them. See, because All Quiet on the Western Front is a book where the author is helping you to see what they all learned from this terrible conflict. And what they all learned is stuff we all take for granted now. So we can relate to it more easily. Of course war is horrible. My goodness, look at the First World War. Look at the Second World War. We've got all these examples in the 20th century that just show you how terrible and negative and lacking of any sort of redeeming value war is. Absolutely. Except that it makes it impossible to understand why those people fought like they did. When you read accounts of what battle in the First World War was like, the first thing that you have a problem understanding is why are these people so idealistic? What the heck are they fighting for? We're so cynical today, we wouldn't stand for two seconds for what they were standing for for years. When the French army started mutinying in late 1916, early 1917, it was really bad during something called uh, the Neville Offensive, uh, and it looked for a little bit like France's soldiers would just say, no, no more. We're not going to climb out of these trenches and get mowed down by machine gun fire and gas and artillery again. Um, you know, our generals are idiots. They're wasting our lives. We're not going to fight. I think we all would get that way remarkably quickly, that the people of Europe were willing to march into the machine gun fire for so long is hard for us now to understand. And if you read books like All Quiet on the Western Front, you don't get a better idea of why they did that. Because, of course, the author has learned what we all know now. But you read Ernst Younger's The Storm of Steel, and you're confronted with a totally different reality. Younger is one of these people whose account of the First World War is probably the best. You want to read and understand what it was like. And Younger's is more interesting, in my opinion, because it's from the other side. It's from the German side. Um, you read Younger's book. It's written like a diary. 
and Younger is so matter-of-fact. I mean, he doesn't dramatize anything, but he doesn't have to. Life was so dramatic for someone like Younger. And the, the reason that you don't read his book in high school is because Younger made the critical mistake from a literary standpoint of feeling like he got something out of the conflict, like it wasn't a totally negative experience. He wasn't so transformed by the war that he felt like peace was the way, so he didn't have that redeeming moralistic message at the end that, you know, we want our high school kids to get about war. But it explains more about the motivation of these people that were willing to fight and die in the trenches and deal with the gas attacks and the tanks and the aircraft when they thought they were going to fight a short war with bayonet charges and glory and heroism. Younger's book makes you understand why people would fight for king and country and why they would think of the war as a challenge, something to be overcome. I believe it was Younger who actually coined the phrase, that which does not kill me only makes me stronger. That sort of mentality was widespread in the trenches, especially early on in the war. Without reading a book by a man like Younger, you don't get that. So you don't understand why people fought for the Kaiser, or why Russians would fight for the Tsar, or why fighting for king and country if you were one of the British old contemptibles, as they were called, um, you know, in 1914, why you would put up with what you were fighting for. In a sense, the old world was brainwashed. The world that marched into 1914 was really the world of 1814, and they lived under a totally different set of assumptions of duty and honor and country and war. You read Winston Churchill's account of fighting at Omdurman, you know, in the late 1800s against the dervishes, and you see that colonial mentality of Great Britain, which, again, was mortally wounded on the fields of Flanders, where the British suffered more casualties in a couple of battles than they suffered in the whole Second World War. On the first day of the Somme, they lost tens of thousands of men. On the first day, that is hard to comprehend. Imagine a gas attack for a minute. Imagine being in a trench with a lot of other soldiers and essentially being sprayed by raid. It's unimaginable. And to think of trying to you know, deal with something like that with technology from a hundred years ago? Imagine trying to deal with it with modern tech. You wouldn't want to be in a gas attack with all of the modern chemical warfare suits we have. Imagine being in it when a gas mask was nothing but a canvas bag. That's the level of technology we're talking about here. But the shells sure were dangerous, weren't they? The machine guns were high enough tech to do their nasty work. As a matter of fact, if you want to visualize what war on the Western Front was like, imagine a giant siege where both sides are trying to break the trenches of the other side, but both sides' trenches go so far back, and there's so much barbed wire between them, and there's so much firepower that no one can do it, but that doesn't stop you from trying. And the trenches reached all the way from the ocean up in the north, you know, the North Sea, all the way down to the mountains of Switzerland in belts. And to give you an idea of how amazingly intense the shelling was, go read a book. It's called Aftermath, The Remnants of War. And it's a book about what these battlefields are like when the war is over. Because, you know, people forget about it. The war's over, just go home and forget about it. But 
the millions upon millions of shells that were fired on French soil, many of them are still there. They had millions of duds mixed in with those live shells. And those duds buried themselves in the soil in these attacks where millions of shells were shot off. And the weather and Mother Nature has been bringing them to the surface ever since. Some of these shells are as tall as a man. Some of them are still filled with gas. And people die in France every year because of them. And in this book, you follow the demolition teams that are out there working, you know, 365 days a year in France still to pick up the shells unearthed by farmers or from people in their backyard or from some of these areas where the shelling was most intense. There are still whole swaths of France where you're not allowed to go that are cordoned off because there are shells everywhere you look. It's unbelievable the amount of these found shells that they destroy every year. So, when we talk about living with the First World War, some of us are just living with the after-effects, like we said, what's going on in the Middle East right now, after-effect of the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire, which was a direct effect of the First World War. But there are people dying in France today from shells shot off in 1914. Again, a very direct connection to the past. Now, one of the major weapon systems that we, you know, that still makes up the main battle force of every major military in the world today is the tank. The tank, you can see what the purpose of it was when you realize that eventually some of the smarter heads on the uh, Allied side in this case, Winston Churchill, actually one of the main people involved in this, were trying to figure out a way to break the trench deadlock you had. And you needed something that could cross trenches, so it had to be like a bulldozer because these battlefields had been plowed up by the artillery. They were hard to get across anyway, so you needed a tracked vehicle. You needed something that was immune to machine gun bullets and something that had some guns itself. That's how the tank was born. It was an attempt to overcome the primacy of the defense with all these trenches and bullets all over the battlefield. It's interesting, too, by the end of the First World War, you have the Germans using tactics on the Western Front that are the precursors to the Blitzkrieg tactics that were so effective for the Germans in the Second World War. When people talk about you know, the Second World War being just the continuation of the First World War, it was in a lot of ways. A lot of the sides picked up right where they left off. Submarines were a curiosity when the First World War started. It was to turn out to be one of the main reasons the U.S. got into the conflict in the first place, which was the main reason the conflict ended the way it did when it did. Those submarines sank ships that had U.S. personnel on them, becoming a direct cause of the U.S. involvement in the European war, which fundamentally, by the way, changed the U.S. because that's the first time we ever went over to Europe to get involved in one of their conflicts. We've done it since quite a bit. We still have tons of troops over there in various countries, and that itself is a direct result of the First World War, basically changing the whole outlook. Because when the U.S. got involved, they did it for high-minded reasons. You know, these nations that were struggling on the Western and Eastern fronts all over Europe, a lot of them were monarchies. Germany was a monarchy. Austria-Hungary uh, Austria was a monarchy. The Ottoman Empire was a constitutional monarchy. Uh, Russia was a monarchy. All of those empires were swept away. Now, the U.S. 
they're allies. The French were a republic, but the British constitutional monarchy. Um, we fought for idealistic reasons. Our president, Woodrow Wilson, uh, coined a phrase that we needed to make the world safe for democracy. Sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? And the idea was that we were going to go to Europe, we were going to help end this war, and we were going to do it on terms that were fair, that brought justice to the you know, end of the conflict. And justice was going to be the element that was missing that would allow all these parties to you know, live in peace. And by the way, it was Wilson and people like him who at the end of the First World War made it a condition that they wanted a League of Nations, the precursor to the United Nations, um, so that this horrible trauma that the world had just gone through would not be for nothing. You know, that it would usher in this new world where states would have a supreme arbiter so that they didn't have to iron out their differences with poison gas, tanks, trenches, machine guns, and horrible, horrible casualties. And, you know, if you want to realize how important the First World War is to the now, just look at how many books are still coming out all the time trying to reinterpret or give you a new spin. It's almost like the JFK assassination, the conspiracy uh, uh, industry out there that's always putting out books on, you know, a new theory about who might have killed Kennedy. Well, you're still getting books on, you know, what was the cause of the First World War? And you'd think, well, gosh, you know, darn near 100 years of history ought to have us had time to figure this out. One of the most important things of the last 100 years, we'd like to know who's responsible for the First World War. You'd think we'd know that by now. But here's the thing. The results of the blame are so profound that even today there are vested interest in changing the conventional wisdom of who is at fault for the First World War. Because when I was growing up, going to the 1970s and go to high school history class in the United States on the First World War, you're going to find out that the Germans started the First World War, that it was their fault. And one of the reasons for this is that when the Germans signed the Versailles Treaty, under not very fair conditions, it must be said, you know, the, Brit the Germans sent their troops all home like they were supposed to, and the British kept a naval blockade on them. And by the time the Germans signed the treaty, they had no choice. The British weren't lifting the blockade till it was signed, and the Germans had all gone home. Um, one of the clauses in the treaty was that Germany had to assume guilt for the war, that they and Austria-Hungary had to admit that it was their fault it started, that they had to pay reparations, that they would have their fleets turned over to their enemies, that they would have their armies limited in the future. I mean... That war guilt clause was itself a big reason that the era of Nazism and the Second World War that would eventually be fought was fought. People who led the nations of the world in the Second World War were foot soldiers in the first. Adolf Hitler was a corporal. He was hit by shrapnel, wounded on the Western Front. Uh, Winston Churchill was the first Lord of the Admiralty for Britain in the First World War. And when he left that position, he actually went and fought in the trenches for a while. It was the event that seared a generation of war leaders and also embittered them. And if you don't think that there were, I mean, the whole stabbed in the back theory that Hitler played on so much with the German people was um, part of this bitterness that they felt at having to accept 
you know, sole responsibility for the worst war in human history, right? They called the Great War because it was so bad. And if you don't think he was bitter and the Germans were, just think about the irony when France had to surrender in 1940 to Hitler's armies. They found the exact railway car that France had used when they made the Germans sign the Versailles Treaty and made everybody sit in the same place and then Hitler blew up the railway car after the French signed the Treaty of 1940. You know, the irony and the symbolism was obvious. This was the final victory denied in the First World War, and it wasn't our fault. We had to take the blame. We had to pay the reparations. Our country suffered with the whole conflicts between Bolsheviks and rightists in the streets. We had the biggest inflation in the whole world. You did this to us. Now you're going to sign a treaty in the same railway car you made us sign that terrible instrument, you know, that led us to here. So the books are still coming out, trying to figure out you know, what was it that actually caused the First World War and why did these empires have these fights and why was it so terrible and why did it go on so long? And I mean, it rears its ugly head all the time. I was watching a TV special a couple years ago about the guy, the uh, aerodynamic artillery expert that was building the super gun for Saddam Hussein a while back. You all remember that? Before the first Gulf War, one of the things that um, you know was used as evidence that Saddam was a bad guy and he was going to cause all kinds of trouble was that he was supposedly building a super gun, a gun that could shoot an artillery shell from Iraq and reach all the way to Israel. And the guy building it was a guy named Dr. Gerald Bull. And Dr. Gerald Bull was a fan of something called the Paris gun. And the Paris gun was a gun that the Germans used in the First World War. An enormous gun with a barrel that just went way up to the sky with supports underneath it to keep it from falling. And this gun could shoot a shell 75 miles. And the Germans shelled Paris with it. Just another example of something that made an appearance in the First World War. One of these hideous weapons that we've not seen the like of again that still fires man's imagination. How traumatic a conflict must that have been? And so when you look at, I mean, gosh, just look at the Soviet Union. Just look at all the damage caused by communism in, you know, the country that's now once again Russia and realize that the First World War undercuts the underpinnings, the pillars of the old world to such a degree that a country like Russia, one of the great territories and regions of that era, falls to this obscure political ideology that never would have had a chance to take over in a major country if the war hadn't ripped the fabric of Europe apart down the middle. And when it was over, and the West, through a number of treaties, redrew the map of Europe along more nationalistic lines and ethnic lines. And the idea was, well, we'll give the, these people their own country because they're a separate national group, and these people would like self-determination, we'll give them their own country. That sowed the seeds for all of the territorial and racial claims that Hitler used before the Second World War broke out. I mean, what was he worried about? He was worried about, for example, German minorities in the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia part of the redrawing of the maps after the First World War. He was worried about the situation in Danzig, created as a free 
city after the First World War. All of the Eastern Prussian Corridor was given to Poland, another reason the Germans were angry. And these created, you know, open festering wounds that didn't go away. Germany was having to watch as the French exploited German industry in the Rhineland, which was working for France to pay off the war debt that the Germans didn't feel like they owed in the first place. The First World War not only destroyed the old world, but kept the knife in the countries that were defeated so that they couldn't heal. And it's ironic, I think, when you look at Europe today and contrast the Europe of 100 years ago with the Europe of now. 100 years ago, Europe was the most militant, armed group of human individuals on the planet. Now, it's the most peaceful, least warlike groups of people on the planet. And you could easily make a case, I think, that the trauma of the two world wars, the shock at the fall from preeminence that the Europeans have seen in the last hundred years has fundamentally changed, you know, the national DNA of those peoples. And there's all kinds of theories you could apply. I mean, you could literally say that the people like Ernst Junger, who wrote Storm of Steel, are no longer a major part of the European DNA because they're dead. What was it Hitler said that all the best soldiers had died because all that was left were the ones that avoided combat and didn't want to fight and were scared and all the brave people were already dead. Well, how many times can nations have their generations of their bravest, brightest, and most heroic mowed down before that takes a toll? Why did those people fight those kinds of wars, which we wouldn't fight for five minutes? Because they were part of an old world mentality. A mentality that had prepared them, had prepped the ground for these people to be willing to sit in the trenches and fight and die for king and country in a way we can't relate to anymore. But we can't relate to it anymore because of what happened in that war. And just go look at your literature from the 1920s, your pop culture from the 1920s, and you'll see how the post-traumatic scars of that conflict were so deep that they're never going to go away and that we probably still have another 50 or 60 years before we iron out just the most major wrinkles still left to us from that conflict that we call the First World War, but that I think still deserves the title, The Great War, because it'll blow your mind. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. It's history. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. The events. The figure. I take pride in the words 
Ich bin ein Violiner. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. The drama. I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. If we dig deep in our history and our doctrine, and remember that we are not descended from fearful men. It's hardcore history.